I think one of the biggest challenges that we have as ER doctors is what do you do in that code situation where you maybe don't have a lot of time? The first thing that you rely on is your instinct. And instinct for emergency med physicians is your training, right? I know the ACLS protocols. I'm going to go through the ACLS protocols. But as soon as that breaks down and doesn't work, where do you go next? And it's a combination of two things in my mind. It's some dynamic thinking, thinking about all the possibilities of where could I go? What could I do? And it's asking for help, right? You have a huge team around you in a code situation. And the biggest mistake I see junior learners make is not asking for help. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Jonathan Rogg. John is an associate professor and vice chair of strategy and operations in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the McGovern Medical School, which is part of UT Health. He regularly lectures on physician leadership and personal finance for physicians. He holds two undergraduate degrees from MIT, an MD from Tufts, and he trained in emergency medicine at the Harvard-affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency at Mass General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I was lucky enough to work with and learn from him. Dr. Rogg completed an emergency medicine administrative fellowship at Mass General Hospital and also has an MBA from Harvard Business School. As you can guess from this really impressive set of credentials, John has a very interesting mix of perspectives on leadership and performance, both at the micro level in terms of how to run a particular resuscitation as an individual, and at the macro level of how to design systems that enable an entire department to function well under pressure. There's a ton to learn here, and I'm going to be thinking about the lessons in this episode for a long time to come. Before we get into it, a reminder, if you haven't already, to check out our book, The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. It's available at Amazon. You can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. And if you already have a copy, please consider leaving a review. It's a huge help for us for getting our message out there. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this really awesome episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It's great to be face-to-face with you again. It's been a while, and I'm psyched to have you on and talk about all this stuff. Yeah, it's great to be here. So for folks that don't know you, can you give like a brief one or two second overview of like who you are and what you do and and what your life is like these days? Sure. So I'm an ER doc down in Texas at an academic medical center, the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. And I trained in emergency medicine uh, with you as, as you well know, but I went on and did an MBA and trained in administration in emergency medicine as well. So I wear a couple of different hats. One is a financial hat. One is an operational hat. And one is a clinical hat. I guess why? What prompted you to to choose to go into that area and sort of pursue that line of overlapping training? Yeah. So there's two big things. On the operational side, I like big questions and I love being with patients and how can I help the patient in front of me? But I also like looking at systems to say, how can I make this system more efficient? How can I decrease the wait time, for example, for our patients in the waiting room and do that on a larger level? So I think those questions are really interesting and challenging as well. And as far as the financial side of things, one of the things that I really believe in is physician leadership. And when you look around, especially when I started my training and you looked at most hospitals, they were run by business people, not by physicians. And to me, it made sense that the best leaders that you can have for a clinical operation are clinicians. And the only way to get clinicians to be able to get to that level is to have some type of business training as well. So you can't just have an MBA running a hospital. It should be someone with an MD and some type of business training as well. 
So I guess let's start by jumping into systems. The thing that we spend so much time here talking about is sort of performance under pressure. And we do a lot of individual work on that. Like, how do I prepare myself to perform under pressure? But what we know is that we are as strong as our systems are in supporting us and that we need good systems wrapped around us. So when you start thinking of systems performance under pressure, what do you think about for that? How do you approach these questions of how the systems in your hospital and your shop perform under pressure? It's really hard to figure out how they're going to perform unless you see it happen. A lot of what I do is you wait till something fails. I wish in medicine, you could say, hey, I think the system is going to fail because whatever, we're going to get a COVID surge or a hurricane's going to hit. But that's really hard to prepare for a lot of the time. And instead, unfortunately, in medicine, a lot of what we do is reactionary. We saw that there was a patient safety event. We saw that we had a lot of patients in our waiting room. How are we going to react to that so we're prepared for the next time. So as we think about our structure, our you know emergency mind framework of prepare, perform, recover, and evolve, I'm hearing you say that you basically tend to drop into that somewhere in the perform or recover side of it, as opposed to the prepare side. And then you try to spin the circle from there. So you say, hey, this thing happened. This person caught on fire in the lobby. We're not really sure why they caught on fire, why the fire safety thing didn't work, but now we got to go back and figure it out. So what do you use to do that? Like when you have an event that happens like that, what system do you use to try to learn from it and grow? So I think it works on multiple levels, right? The most obvious way that we do this in emergency medicine is our QA system, right? And so we have at the hospital that I'm now a very robust QA system, but that only deals with the patient concern and the patient's quality of care. What do you do? Again, as an example, in Houston, we had Hurricane Harvey that hit. I don't think anyone was prepared for the magnitude of the damage and the flooding that we were going to see for that. And we learned a lot of valuable lessons because of that, and also indirectly because of that, because no one came in during Hurricane Harvey. That wasn't bad for the hospitals. What was bad for the hospitals was when everything cleared up and patients could get to the hospital. Interesting. Did you all have working models of that ahead of time? Like, had you run tabletop games? Had you thought through sort of the, what would happen in a biphasic surge like that? Yeah. So- you know, we all have disaster models and we all train for that in emergency medicine, mm-hmm. right? You know, you have your mass casualty instances. We practice those at our medical school. We practice those at our hospitals. But I'll give you a concrete example of what we did at Harris Health, which is where I work after Hurricane Harvey. Our traditional model had really been a serial flow model. A patient comes in, they sit in the waiting room, they wait to be seen. And what we realized is we needed to look for a more efficient model. And so one of the things that's been popular in emergency medicine and other places is keeping vertical patients vertical. Would it be possible to take patients who didn't need a bed and put them in a chair so they could be seen by providers, get them out of the waiting room and get their care started? And so that's one of the things that we did in the post-Harvey era that really helped our efficiency in our waiting room. And this is a not poorly resourced, but it's a county hospital system that has a lot of challenges and resources is one of them. So how do you optimally use your resources to provide high quality care for your patients? And that's one way we did it, right? Keeping vertical patients vertical. So you're having those discussions, right? You're in the middle of, and let's sort of like zoom in and then zoom back out again. So we're going to zoom in. So it doesn't have to be hard. It's sort of anything. You have some shock to the system and you realize, hey, the dominant model of how we're performing right now isn't going to continue working in the next minutes, hours, days, weeks, whatever it is. And we're going to have to make a change. How do you operationalize that change? Is that coming from you as the leadership? Is that coming from a push up from the people on the floor saying, hey, something's not working here. We got to flex. Or how do you guys design systems that are, that are resilient to those sort of shocks? 
I think it's all of those. And I really think it's getting the minds in the room that are affected by this. So as best as you can, it's not just having the leadership involved. The leadership is probably the least important. What you really want is the people from the ground. So your nurses and your doctors to say, hey, what could we do? I do think there's a place for leadership and where leadership is effective is that understanding these different models that other people are doing, understanding the literature out there and say, hey, I know that some other place has tried X. Do you think X would work here? I think that's a place where leadership can be helpful, but really have to talk to your ground staff and say, do you think this is possible? Do you think this would work? If we move the chairs around, if we reconfigure the physical nature of our emergency department, would that make things better? There's such a great drift here into sort of this idea of work as imagined versus work as done, which I think is one of the most important and like really fun aspects of doing emergency care is that we live very clearly in the work is done world, right? There's all these sort of theories about what might work, but at the end of the day, like how are we actually going to accomplish getting this care to this person? And I'm really fascinated by this question of what are the right links of communication in a web to get as much data as possible into a place where we can make an efficient decision about changing the flow and changing resources like that. Because I don't think it's just individual shocks. It's also like on a moment to moment basis, as you go through the ER, things change. I think you're absolutely right. And you said the most important thing, which is feedback. And you have to be able to try something, say it didn't work or it did work really well. And we want to try to do more of that and continually iterate and improve what you do. If you're unwilling to do that, then I don't think you can really come up with a system that's going to work in the end. That's what we do every day as ear docs, right? You try a medication. If that doesn't work, you go to your second line medication. Man, that's a great parallel. Let's let's zoom into that. So if you're in the middle of a room, you're running a resuscitation, what are the systems, what are the mental models that you use to identify, hey, it's time to flex, it's time to do something different? And how do you go through that process in, for your own self? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest challenges that we have as ER doctors is what do you do in that code situation where you maybe don't have a lot of time? The first thing that you rely on is your instinct. And instinct for emergency med physicians is your training, right? I know the ACLS protocols. I'm going to go through the ACLS protocols. But as soon as that breaks down and doesn't work, where do you go next? And it's a combination of two things in my mind. It's some dynamic thinking, thinking about all the possibilities of where could I go? What could I do? And it's asking for help, right? You have a huge team around you in a code situation. And the biggest mistake I see junior learners make is not asking for help. And that's true no matter how senior you are, right? Sometimes your nurse has a great idea or has some useful information or your resident does or the off-service person that's in there or anesthesia or whoever. Ask them for advice. Does anyone have anything else to add? I'm hearing the echoes of our mutual training in that sentence, right? And I'm imagining a good doctor, Chuck Posner, uh, yelling at me in three in the morning to like harness the wisdom of the room when I'm running resuscitation. I imagine he yelled at you a couple of times as well. Um, oh yeah. I remember those days fondly. Chuck, thank you if you're listening to this. So how do you ask that? Because I think that's something that that's a, a question that comes up to me quite a bit, both from people on the podcast and people that I'm training and working with, which is that actually, how do you ask for help? logistically drill on that question as much as possible. How do you get all those people around you to feed forward into your mental model? I'm going to answer that question a little bit differently, and I'll come back to it in a second. It's how not to ask that question. Yelling at people will not get what you want. Not having control of the room, you will not get what you want. So the best way you can be a leader in that situation or any situation, control your emotions. You should be firm in what you speak. But ask people, right? Look around the room with your eyes and say, you know, to the nurse, 
Do you have any ideas? Look around to the resident. Do you have any ideas? Anyone have any ideas? And I think acknowledging the person with your eyes in a calm manner is the best way to ask for help. And that's true in other situations, in other leadership meetings, and even over the longer term, when you're making some of these bigger design changes for an emergency department over time, a calm, steady hand is the way to ask for help. And just put it out there, right? There's, no, there's nothing special to say, I need help. Is there anything I haven't thought of? Looking at somebody, can you think of anything else we should add? I think that's incredibly powerful. And it's interesting that you said there's nothing special about that because I actually think there's like a ton of magic in there, right? And I think that there's an older, still sometimes dominant model of medicine that says the single doctor knows best about everything and that what you should do is push that knowledge on other people. And when we think about building a culture, either I'm going to sort of call this, but either a microculture within a resuscitation room or a macroculture within an organization, right? We know that building multiple direction communication, feedback, and inherently in that vulnerability and lack of perfection is an incredibly important piece of that. Stepping away from that model that says, I, Dan Dworkis, am perfect and you are not, and instead saying, hey, we're in this together to solve this problem and I need help doing that. That's actually like crucially important and a sort of still somewhat radical idea in some circumstances. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that even in my own work in leadership outside of the emergency department, in administration, you will see many different types of leader. But the two most obvious types of leaders are exactly as you described, right? There's this, I would say, maybe more old school, autocratic way of running a business, a hospital, a department, whatever it is. And there's a more what we call servant leadership type of role, which is really looking to bring everybody up and to get everybody's opinion from the ground up, that the person at the top is at the service of the people at the bottom versus the autocratic style. And that is true, whether you're in an emergency department resuscitation bay, or you're the chief executive of a hospital or healthcare organization. And the leaders that you see in either of those roles, either down in the pit or sort of running the higher level systems of the hospital, the ones that you see that you really admire, that you aspire to be, what do they do differently? I think what they do is they really make the people under them shine, right? So you go to the person under you and say, what can I do to make you better, right? Not what can I do to make me better or have me have a bigger paycheck or get a bigger bonus. It's what can I do to make you better? And if you care about the people under you and you support the people who are below you, that makes your organization stronger. And that's super easy to say, but realistically, hard to do. And it's cultural. It's building the culture. So I think leading in the emergency department is like leading in the boardroom. It's leading by example. Don't ask people to do things you don't want to do. And the person at the top should be willing to do the most lowly job, right? I push my patients to CT. Why? Because that's what the patient needs. And there's other people who can do that. But if I'm there and I have the time and that's what the patient needs, that's what I'm going to do. So you said it's building culture. And what we know about building culture is that it's small things over time that bend the flow of everything, right? It's not enough to say, let's have a strong culture. Instead, it's understanding a lot of little choices and a lot of little actions. I guess you'd call it the conscious accumulation of marginal gains over time, the integral of that, that allows us to build a strong and healthy culture. So you just gave a really good example of it, which is having foremost in your mind, 
what's the most important thing for this patient and this team at this time? And then doing that and recognizing and saying, as you're doing that, that nobody is more or less important in this moment in the ER, we need people to get done what needs doing. What else do you put on that list? What are the other choices that you try to make over the course of your shift or over the course of a week or a month that really try to have that marginal gain and build that culture? So I think the other thing that you really need, and this is one of the challenges in healthcare are the resources to make it happen. I'm nodding vigorously to that. Yes. You know, sometimes you can do something about that, right? If there's something that needs to happen, you can go to your charge nurse and say, Hey, I need another nurse over here to help me. So I have the ability to take care of this patient, right? Seeing as the nurse as a resource or a tech or the CT scanner time, whatever that resource is, sometimes you can manipulate that within your shift. Sometimes you can't. And then it's advocating for your department, for you, for your colleagues, for your nurses, for your techs, for your residents to get those resources so that you can have that cultural change. And that's what I tell uh, when I teach leadership to physicians and to residents, especially. That's what I tell them, right? The whole idea of culture is most doctors are good people, right? Most doctors are smart people. They wouldn't really want to help. And that's true for nurses and other healthcare professionals. But to get that culture, there's many hospitals that have a bad culture and many departments with a bad culture. And many that have, hopefully many that have good cultures as well. And the difference is taking your individual acts and being able to put them together with everybody else that you work with to make them greater than the sum of the parts. You know, I was reading recently a quote from the restaurateur, I think that's how you pronounce that, the restaurateur, Danny Myers, who has a number of very famous high-functioning restaurants. And, And he says, we have priorities, whether we name them or not. And if you want to grow and succeed, you need to name the priorities and name the behaviors that match and support those priorities. And that strikes me as very similar to what you're saying about building a healthy culture in the emergency department. So I guess I'd ask, how vocal are you all during a shift about what your priorities are for building that culture? Well, for me, I think you know me well enough to know I'm pretty vocal. I don't mess around and the, the nurses know me. And I will say that One of the challenges that many of our other faculty have is that I am vocal and I have a reputation, good or bad, of person who pushes buttons and gets things done. And I have seen other people struggle because once I've built up to that reputation and I don't know that it's totally deserved, but new faculty come in and they're like, John, you know, you come out and ask for something and you get it right? And that is absolutely true. I am treated in many ways differently than some of the other faculty, especially newer faculty that I work with. And so how do you get people who are new to the system to get that same thing where they can go and ask for something and get it as well? I don't necessarily have a great answer for that other than to try to teach it as best as you can, role model it. I also think, you know, as we talk about still on this topic of sort of building a strong and resilient culture, that the way that we treat each other and the way that we function as a team during a bunch of small moments really matters for that. So my guess is in your current job, and I know this for for certainty in where we used to work together at Mass General, having observed you directly take care of people and teach me how to take care of people, that when there are those moments when somebody comes up to you with an idea, hey, what if we did this? Or, hey, I'm really worried about this thing we're doing. Can we revisit this? You take those comments and concerns very seriously, and you obviously show people how much you value their input and how much you're part of the team together. And I think that that creates this space where it makes more sense 
for you to come in and then ask for something to say, hey, this is what I think we should do. Let's go do this together. Because that doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? If you drop into a space that you don't know anybody and you're like, yo, I need this crazy thing to happen. uh, That's a lot harder of an ask than when you've built up a lot of time and and energy and goodwill with the person. Absolutely. So there's two things in there. The first thing that I want to say is, you know, they say there's no second chance to make a first impression. Right. And when you meet new nurses, we have new nurses rotating in all the time. You're new sometimes when you start a new job. Getting that first interaction right is really important. But even so, one of the things that you said, and this is immediately what I thought of, is I remember an early shift I had as a resident when a nurse came to me with a concern. And the attending said to me, You've got to trust your nurses and take your nurses seriously and acknowledge that. And I did that. And I can't tell you how many times I've been saved. And I'm sure you're the same. When nurses come to you, and said, hey, something isn't right. Can you just take a look at this patient? You say, you know what? I trust you and I'm going to do it. And I can think of a case within the last two weeks where I had that happen, where a patient was going to be discharged and a nurse came in and said, hey, John, something's not right. Can you come look at this patient? And that patient, I went and revisited him and the patient ended up getting admitted. And you know, the nurse did the right thing. Yeah. And so it is acknowledging and trusting the people that you work with. And it's not that they always have to be right but it is that level of acknowledgement to say, I see what your concern is. And then if there's a reason why you're not concerned, you know, explaining to them your reasoning, I think is often helpful. Yeah, that's crucial. And that's such a piece of, of what I aspire to be like as a leader, both in and out of crisis is a leader that uses every interaction, every opportunity to grow my team and to lift everybody. Right. And I think whether that interaction ends with us doing protocol A or us doing protocol B is is less relevant than how we handle it and what we learn from it and how we grow from it and how to, how to make that part of the culture in there. Sometimes we do that really well. And my guess is, to be totally honest, if you chart on a graph how good I am at doing that and how long it's been since I've eaten a snack, you'll find probably a pretty good correlation. There are times when I am probably a really frustrating, angry person to work with. And that's probably because I haven't really set myself up for success the right way like that. It's interesting to think about how our very high-minded goals of building functional teams rely on support systems, like do you have enough sugar in your body and stuff like that. And maybe that drifts us back a little bit in the systems, but how how do you set things up that support you and your team and the ability to do what you just said? Yeah, I'm gonna move that question to something on a bigger level, which I think we're all saying, which is what's going on with the emergency department workforce and COVID and the strain on everybody. And originally it was COVID, right? It was, you were afraid of getting sick from COVID, but now it's actually staffing issues, right? Finding techs and nurses and and empty hospital beds for those patients to go to, right? The emergency departments are overwhelmed and overworked in a lot of places. I know they certainly are where I am. And our staff as well, right? The nurses that show up to work, you're almost doubly hurt, right? You're hurt because you show up to work and you have more patients than you can care for because there's not enough other nurses to work. And they really need you to work as much as you can for that same reason. And so I think I don't have a great answer for this, especially in this environment. I mean, if you're hungry, giving your residents a chance to eat food or for you to take a break, a mental break to eat food, making sure you have things good at home. I think those are things that are definitely helpful, but for some of the things that are going on right now, I think it's challenging. The other thing that I'll say, one of the topics that I lecture on uh, really around the country is financial wellness for physicians. And a lot of people look at and say, well, doctors are, doctors are rich people. 
But I can't tell you how many doctors live paycheck to paycheck and worry about their finances. You come out of residency, you're not making a lot of money, you have a lot of educational debt. What allows people to succeed in their job is not being worried about the people that they love at home, not being worried about making their rent, not worrying about the daycare for their children if they're working off hours in the emergency department. And I really believe that, again, it's only a part of it, but financial wellness for physicians or anyone else, good financial habits is really important to be able to take care of other people and do well at your job. A constant theme on this podcast from every angle, from every guest, from every discipline that we study is this idea of how what you do in your day off matters so much to what you can do on your day on and how the setup, the preparation and the recovery matter so much to your ability to perform when you're needed to perform. I think that's historically and chronically undervalued as we teach people how to do this profession. I certainly didn't get as much of that as I would have wanted coming in. And I'm happy that you're out there teaching folks about that now. I definitely felt that at the beginning coming out of residency, that paycheck to paycheck, trying to figure out what I'm doing. And everything that we pile on like that adds massive cognitive load and massive stress to our systems and makes it that much harder for us to actually perform when we need to. So I'm I'm glad to hear you're doing that. Absolutely. I think you need to be thoughtful about what you do at work and you need to be thoughtful about the time that you spend and what you do with your time when you're not at work. And those two rely on each other. It's a feedback loop. How has that changed for you over the years of being an attending, or even if you want to drift back into being a resident? What do you do differently when you're setting up for a shift? What do you do differently when you're coming home? So setting up for a shift is not usually a problem for me. I will say I get to my shift probably an hour early is pretty typical for me, which is way earlier than most people. And that is something I have done since my resident days. And I will tell you the reason for that in the resident days is we used to have the pre-round because you didn't have electronic medical records where you could view everything from home. Uh, And then you stay after your shift. And that's one place that has really helped out is I don't stay after my shift and finish my charts like I used to. I go home and let them marinate for a day before I finish my charts. I think it, it makes my charts better and I put any important information in there. But I think thinking about the charts and writing my differentials and what I'm communicating to future providers is better actually writing it the second day. But I think the important thing, and this is the great thing about emergency medicine, is what you do with your time off. And I will tell you the biggest game changer for me was not leaving residency. It was having children. And there's so little time that you have to yourself. And for me, I'm not a great athlete. I don't do a lot of running, but what I really enjoy is playing tennis. And when I am out on the tennis court and I try to play once a week, I block everything out of my mind and I focus on that. And so focusing on something else that you enjoy, uh, I think it's helpful if it's physical. That to me is the greatest mental stress reliever that I have. There's this model, I forget where it originally came from, but the, the idea of sort of the third thing, right? That you have your work, you have your home and your family, and you have a third thing. And that third thing ideally has literally nothing to do with either of the first two. Nobody cares that you're a doctor when you're doing it. Nobody cares that you're the leader of whatever. They just are like, how good are you at playing tennis right now? And you can really throw yourself into that. And that's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And the best thing is I'm only thinking about the next point, right? Or the point that I'm in. I don't think about what happened before. 
I don't think what happened after, what emails I'm going to get, what phone calls I'm going to get, how much sleep I'm going to, I don't think about those anything. I am living in the moment in that game. Hmm. Remind me not to play tennis against you. I bet you'd crush me. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm not a great athlete, as I said. Chen, can we go back just one second? Because I, I want to zoom in on one thing, which is you talked about going home and not staying late after shift to think about your charts because you want to give them the space and time to develop and have your brain sort of subconsciously work on them a little bit. But what about that moment when you get home? How do you get home? What do you do when you're coming home? A lot of the folks that we talk to on the podcast have a ritual they use to shed the emotional stress of what they've been through, to shed some of the mental work, sometimes to physically cleanse themselves of COVID or anything else before they come back to their families. And I ask on that because this is something that I keep getting asked too, which is how do you come home well? What does that first moment of the recovery phase look like? I don't know if this is because of COVID, but one thing I've always done is I do not like being in those scrubs from the hospital. I feel used to feel dirty covered in MRSA. Now I'm just covered in COVID and MRSA. And so the first thing I do is I come home, I take off my scrubs and I take a shower. And that has been a ritual I have done since my residency days. And I do think that idea of making everything refreshing and being clean is helpful both in mind and body. And what about to take it even slightly more like microscopic, like what about when you're on shift and you have a really challenging case? How do you do that moment of recovery right afterwards? I think that's the toughest thing. We all have these difficult cases, right? I mean, usually it surrounds, I would say, two things. Deaths or bad outcomes and pediatric patients, right? Yeah. Uh, and those are the toughest to manage. And I don't have a great way to handle. And then I'll make an analogy to something we just talked about. You got to think you're in the tennis game, right? You have to pick yourself up and go see the next patient. And that's the patient you're concentrating on, right? What is done is done for that other patient. If you have a sick patient, they require all of your focus. But once you're done with that, you have to move on to the other patients who require your care. And that is super hard to do. And I am not an expert at doing that, but that is what I try to do. Get myself back in the game and say, look, there's five patients that are waiting to be seen. These patients need care too. How are we as a team going to care for them? Yeah. There's this sense of the sort of stoic philosophy concept of the dichotomy of control, right? Which is that there are things we control and things that we don't, and we need to throw our focus and energy into what we do control. And so there, there's a model where the right answer to how to recover from a seriously challenging outcome is to go see the next patient because they need you and you can control something in that room. You can try to make something better for that person. At the same time, and there's virtue in that, right? Because you are putting your energy where it's useful and you're recognizing the relative significance of you versus the universe, which is that you were small and the universe is big, right? At the same time, there's this other concept that folks at the Mission Critical Team Institute call residue, which is that those moments leave residue with us. And even if I immediately am able to snap up and see the next person, I still have that thing that just happened and I still have to process it. I still have to deal with it. It doesn't go away just because I walk into room six from room seven, right? So in that model, what you're describing of going to the next patient on a pretty rapid basis, where's your residue processing time? And how does that work for you? We talked about it. It's my car ride home, the time that I take in the shower to get ready. So I, in the moment on a shift is really busy and I think I can block it out pretty well, but you're right. 
When I start to think about it is when everything is done, I've given my check and I say, hey, there was that case and it didn't go right. Or even if there's something, you know, there's been a couple of times where I'm like, you know, maybe this patient had a diagnosis. Maybe they had a P and you call back to the hospital on your way Mm -hmm. home. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've certainly absolutely. Hey, you know, can you check this patient and see if you think maybe, maybe send a dime or maybe do the PECT because there could have been something I missed that time on my way home and the time I have getting ready for whatever is going to happen in my house afterwards when I'm taking my shower. That's when I think about the cases that I had, uh, especially the ones that really stuck out in my mind. But in the moment, I'd say most of the time, I can't think that I do, right? It's sad and I feel horrible and I don't necessarily know why, but I can move on to the next patient. At least, at least for me, I can. It's after the shift that I feel it. I think that's very common and very real, right? And I think there's a lot of positive aspects of moving to a place where you are useful as long as you're able to then spend the time and process. You sort of need both sides of the coin. And I think that's something I've learned more the longer I do this, which is that you can't just do that, right? Like you have to have the processing space, whether that's off time or off site or batch processing or whatever it is that works for you. But being conscious about that, I think is I think is pretty important. I want to shift gears very slightly here because there's this really interesting parallel structure that we're building throughout this conversation, right? Which is the micro world of how you perform at a given case in a given day and the macro world of how you lead your division and your department as you grow. And we're seeing some great parallels in here in terms of communication and building of culture and function of performance and recovery and and learning. When you think about that, when you think about those two worlds, the micro world and the macro world, what are some of the biggest parallel lessons that you've learned in terms of similarities between those systems? Well, I think exactly as you said, there's a lot of parallels between them. And the way you carry yourself matters in both of those worlds. And that's really the biggest thing. So again, running that code is the same as being in not only one meeting, but multiple meetings to create a new project, right? To get something up and running. It's the same thing as being code. Now it's less stressful. I'll say that, but the human dynamics are no different. You have to acknowledge everyone. You have to ask for people's opinions in the room. All of that is really important to running an effective meeting. And I will say one of my biggest challenges, and this is not, this is something that's not a parallel, is that when you're in a code, I think things tend to run pretty efficiently and people listen. When you're in an hour-long meeting that you're like, we have another hour-long meeting next week, things don't run efficiently. And so how do you bring that from the ER into your meetings? And I do think the way that you prepare in that case is really important. And I'd say that's the most important part about running a good business meeting, if you will, is the preparation for that. That's super interesting. And I'm thinking about a lot of my friends and colleagues who are founders of different businesses and and the pressures and structures that they're under and that parallel aspect. Because I think you're right that when you're in a code, everybody's purpose is obvious, visible, and aligned. And that might not be the same thing as when you're in a larger scale systems meeting. Right. I think that's your goal. I think in reality, that's often not the case. John, this has been awesome, man. I, there's like so many cool avenues to take this in. I want to be really mindful of our time here and ask, as we sort of close this out, do you have any challenges for people? Is there anything that you want people to do differently? Somebody who's listening to this, whatever level of work or leadership they're in under pressure, what do you want them to do differently tomorrow? 
two things that I would say are one, learn from the good mentors and ignore the people that you find to be less effective. And the second thing, which we already talked about is be thoughtful. I'm a big believer in self-improvement and changing my leadership style based on feedback that I get, based on what I see good leaders do, and based on my own self-evaluation. And I think if you're moving towards the next step in leadership for yourself, that being thoughtful about what those steps are for yourself, making those changes with intent is the best advice that I can give anybody. And it's like emergency medicine where we're always learning. You should always be working on yourself and what you can do better as as a leader, as a friend, as a colleague, as a doctor, as a husband. I love it, man. Thank you so much. I've learned a ton from talking with you about this, and I can't wait to sort of dig in and digest and analyze some of these leadership lessons. So thank you so much, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This was really great, and uh, this is a fantastic podcast. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something, and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. All right, good luck out there.